0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Basically, the goals for this are I want to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology driving the injuries, a little bit about what to do, because honestly, uh, there's, there's a few things you can do that really change the outcome for, a couple of, uh, for both of these conditions, but there's not a whole lot. Okay. And then the bigger one is how to avoid it. Okay, So um, I know this wilderness emergency medicine or wilderness medicine. This is actually a picture of the Sahali Arm, uh, which is the summit of Cascade Pass, which is the closest spot to where I grew up that you could hike over the North Cascades. Um, it's a beautiful spot. This is in the fall. Uh, and my friend and I used to camp up on the scree, sort of up above this, and we thought, ah, oh, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. And then we one time we hear this sort of whooshing sound, and two A-10 warthogs come flying up this valley, waggle their wings, and then go back down the other side and go off to Fort Lewis. And I realized I'm actually not really in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And then this is uh, Coyote Hills, which is another spot where you could potentially get hit by lightning. Um, it's right near Hayward, um, right near the Dumbarton Bridge. Uh, great spot. It looks more remote than it is, but it's remote enough that you might actually need to do some of this stuff there. So, the first thing to differentiate between is lightning versus high voltage, okay? So, high voltage, you can see the power lines. The difference here is it's not a whole lot of volts. It's greater than 1,000 volts, so more than what you get if you stick your finger into the light socket at home. Um, It's usually AC, at least in the US. and the difference here is you get prolonged exposure. So it's not like lightning where it hits you, but you get a transient exposure. Um, because it's prolonged, you get, tend to get more deep tissue injuries, um, and usually the cause of death there is VFib. You can try CPR and VFib. Um, fib if, if you're really lucky, it might work. Uh, your better option there would be an AED. So lightning, on the other hand, is millions of volts, right? So this is the the sort of the pressure differential in terms of electrons between the sky and the earth. Um, But luckily, it's very short duration for most people, okay? You do get severe uh, burns sometimes on the skin, but you tend to not get deep tissue injuries. Uh, And here, the cause of death is either asystole or apnea. So one of the few times when you can resuscitate asystole, you give people CPR and you hope, the mortality rate for lightning strikes for people that are down in asystolic sits at about 40%. Mortality rate for everybody else with asystole approaches 100%, so this is one of the times when it's worth trying to do CPR. So in terms of lightning strikes, there's really four different kinds of ways you get shocked. Okay? There's the direct strike. You're the electrode, right? It comes down from the sky, it hits you. You're the primary conduit into the earth. And there's contact strikes which are you're holding onto a tree or you're hiding under a tree and you touch the trunk, the tree gets hit, and you become a secondary conduit into the earth. It's less voltage going through you or less current going through you, so less damage. Okay? Third option is you're standing next to the tree or you found the, the solo metal pole out in Coyote Hills and you haven't figured out that it's metal and so you haven't run away from it. It hits the metal and then it arcs to you, so that would be a splash strike. Um... You know, you don't want to be the thing next to the electrode that catches the arc, but it's better be, than being the direct strike. And then the most common way that people actually get um, electrocuted from lightning strikes uh, is ground current. So you're standing in water, your shoes are wet, or you're standing on damp ground, your shoes are wet, lightning hits near you, and then as the electricity diffuses across the ground, it finds you. Okay, Much less because you're sort of the the secondary or tertiary reservoir whereas the rest of the earth is the primary reservoir for the Okay, So there's basically three, three laws to remember here. Right? There's Ohm's law which is voltage is current times resistance. Okay? So the way to think of lightning is there's a huge sort of pressure. Think of your garden hose. Okay? You've got your thumb on the end of the garden hose. The voltage is all the pressure in the pipe behind you. Okay? The current is how fast the water comes out. And the resistance is how much you have to push on the end of the hose to make the water squirt the other person. The difference is the resistance here generates heat, okay? which is Joule's law, which we all know because we use toaster ovens, or at least I do. Um, and that's what that is down below. So the heat that's generated is related to um, the current squared times the resistance. So the more current is going through you, the more heat you get. Okay. So in a lightning strike, the more that goes through you, because your resistance is fixed, at least initially, the more current that goes through you, the more heat is generated, the more damage you get. Okay? Same thing's true um, if you grab onto the power line. Um, and then the final one is the ideal gas law, which is basically as you increase temperature, because pressure times volume... Divided by the number of moles, so the number of things, uh, times the temperature is a constant, right? So the only things that can fluctuate here, short of you blowing something off of yourself, is your pressure, your volume, or your temperature. So as the temperature goes up, as the lightning goes through you and you heat up, that means the volume and the pressure inside of you, one of those two has to go up, and in fact, both of them go up, okay? Which will make sense when you when we talk a little bit about the injuries, okay? And then I'm not really sure which med student had to volunteer to sort out the resistance of a dry human being. I know for um, for my class it was uh, how fast does beat or do beats transit the gut. And so we all had to eat two cans of beets and then tell them when they came out the other side. And and honestly, as a result, I don't eat canned beets ever again. Um, But at least I didn't have to tell what the resistance was of me, dry and wet. But the thing to realize here is that the wetter you are, the less resistance there is, so the more current you get. Okay? Um, The other thing to realize is that as you get injured, actually your resistance, or, or as you get an electrical current, your resistance drops. So you start out at 1,000 ohms wet, and then you go down to 500 ohms, and then in another half-life, which is about um, two seconds, you go down to 250 ohms, and, and so on. Okay, now there is a lower limit, but being wet is really not your best friend here. This is a picture of direct, uh, somebody that's gotten a direct strike. So remember, this is the one where you're the electrode. Okay, so you get the majority of the blow. Okay, so the majorities are to the upper torso. In the U.S., it's apparently about 20 people a year that die from lightning strikes. Worldwide, it's, it's about 300 to 400 a year, estimated, right? Because nobody really knows what happens in Africa and most of South America, but we estimate about 3 to 400. There is a guy, uh, Dr. M. Cooper, I think it's Mike Cooper, uh, in Australia, who then decided, well. I want to know why it kills you. So I've got a bunch of sheep, and um, they can't run away, so I'm going to simulate a bunch of lightning strikes. Um, It's not... I think it's ethically questionable, but the the results are somewhat interesting. So when when he videotapes these sheep, basically what he sees is that the direct strike hits the top of the head, and then the electricity enters the eyes, the ears, and the mouth. And if you map where it goes in the brain, the first spot that it hits is the brainstem. And because the, neuron, uh, the neural system is set up to transmit electricity, it transmits very well through there. But it tends to stun the brainstem, which is what leads to the apnea. Okay. Um, and then the next spot that it gets to is heart, and it stuns the heart, which is why you have asystole as opposed to VFib, because it's not a, it's not a um, asynchronous sort of depolarization. It's the entire heart depolarizes at once. And then it has to wait to restart. Okay? Could you just uh, define apnea? Ah, uh, yeah, sorry. That's so, uh, apnea is not breathing, right? So, a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, so, brainstem controls sort of unconscious breathing. Um, if you stun it long enough, or if you have a stroke in your brainstem, you, you just don't remember to breathe consciously or unconsciously. Um, so, you're, you're essentially dead unless somebody breathes for you. Now, this is a stunning effect as opposed to a permanent sort of defect. So if you breathe for the person, doing old-style CPR, like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, as well as um, uh, chest compressions, you can sort of get past the stunned portion of this, and things reset. Okay? And then this is Lichtenberg figures, and basically what's happening here is that as the current goes into you, because you're not the primary... so you're 100,000 ohms of resistance, right? The funny thing about electricity is, like water, it takes the path of least resistance. So the path of least resistance on most of us is around our skin and through our clothes because most of us sweat a little bit, and that sort of builds up on your skin. So you have some salt on your skin, which conducts better than you do. So for most people that get direct strikes, the, the majority of the current goes around them, what's called a flashover because it's sort of traveling across the skin and through their clothes. Those electrons apparently don't move as fast sort of in the skin, and they generate these sort of fern-like things. Uh, they're called Lichtenberg figures because the guy who described them was Lichtenberg. The only thing that really does this is lightning. Um, though you'll see in the next slide, there's another guy who I think probably could do that to himself. No, these are transient. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I've, I've seen this one time. So in my N of 1 experience, they resolved in about an hour. Um, if you look in the literature, some of them last for a day or two. I think it depends on the depth of the burn and sort of how much current was sort of going across the skin and how, how prolonged it was. Um, you can also generate these same figures in a gel, which um, yeah, board scientists do. So... Um, these guys are two guys who I think can probably figure out how to shock themselves uh, enough to get the Lichtenberg figures. This is apparently some dance troupe in uh, New Zealand who plays with high-intensity high electricity. It's as close as I could get to what a splash arc looks like, right? Because the electrode here is the guy and the base of the thing, and then this is the splash coming out. Okay? So in terms of getting struck by lightning there's the direct strike that gives you asystole so your heart doesn't beat and apnea that's transient so you don't breathe okay and then all, almost all of the other significant injuries that you get are blunt trauma related okay so because it's dc current instead of getting the sort of well who who's made the mistake of sticking your finger in a light socket or a plug right or tried to fix the electricity at home without turning off the the breaker okay I know I've done it a bunch, um, <clears throat> which maybe says something about my learning capacity there. But if you've ever done it, what you realize is your hand, because it's at least for me it's always been my hand, it sort of twitches and spasms. right? That's the DC current, so it's repetitively making the muscles... Uh, sorry, that's the alternating current. So it makes the muscles spasm repetitively. Right? And then you get sort of nauseous and sweaty and you have to go sit down for a few minutes. Okay, this is all DC current, so everything in you spasms at once, and because of that, you, you tend to sort of fly out of wherever you got hit from. Plus, there's a concussive part of this. Okay, so the muscle spasm is throwing you, and then as the the electricity goes over the top of you, right, it has to dissipate energy because even to go around you is more than so you're a hundred thousand ohms, assuming you're dry. But to go across your skin, you're still more resistance than zero, right? You're not a superconductor across your skin. So because you've got uh, resistance there, you're generating increased temperature, right? This is Joule's law. So you've got resistance, you've got current going through, so you're going to produce a temperature bubble. Because the air around you is relatively fixed in an instantaneous period of time, that means the pressure and the volume of it have to go up. So you've got rapidly expanding air around you followed by rapidly sort of contracting air around you. So you get to fly, okay, briefly. Okay, so you get all of the injury from the spasm. You get the injury from getting thrown, and then because of this contraction sort of relaxation of the air around you or the gas around you or the tissue around you, um, the most common thing that happens is you rupture your eardrums. This is supposedly about 90% of the people. Um, in my n one guy that got hit by lightning, he'd ruptured the eardrum on the side that he got hit on, but not on the other side. And why that's true, I have no idea, okay? Um, but this is the most common thing. Um, if you have a more sustained blast, you transfer more energy. The parts of you that don't do very well with expansion and contraction are your solid organs. Okay, So you can get liver and spleen shearing And then if you get really unlucky And most of the electricity goes through you So say you're wet And it's not one but two strikes um, You'll end up heating up the marrow And it'll actually make the marrow expand And then you'll get long bone fractures Okay, In terms of what to do Well If the lightning storm's still going over you Don't go out there Don't let your brain get in the way Of your common sense so if the lightning's still going over, well, you know, don't go out until it's gone. Okay? Um, a, B, C, D, E's is a shorthand from a medicine standpoint for the uh, order in which you approach things. Okay? So A is airway, B is breathing, so mouth-to-mouth for somebody that's got apnea. C is circulation, so you're going to start chest compressions. And then, honestly, D and E aren't really going to apply free Okay, D is disability and E is exposure. So look to see where the uh, injuries are aside from the sort of core ones once you've got those stabilized. And then expose the person to make sure you haven't missed any obvious injuries. Okay? This, um, as I said earlier, one of the few times when CPR in the field uh, in a sustained manner is probably worthwhile. Right? So if you go to an AHA class and you take the, like the basic CPR, the first thing they'll say is, well, go for help. Or if there's two of you, send one person for help and the other person starts CPR. This is one of the few times when you should do CPR for four or five minutes before you go for help. Because honestly, if they don't come back for four or five minutes, it's over, and so you're going to notify people, okay? Um, and then from a, just an EMS standpoint, the next things you do would be give them oxygen. Um, you'd hydrate them, and then you'd watch them for arrhythmia sort of post, post-strike. Okay. Anybody know what this is? This is actually St. Elmo's fire. And St. Elmo's, or St. Erasmus, was the patron saint of sailors, and, and basically what they noticed um, when they had wooden ships with metal rigging was that they needed to put a lightning rod on the top of the ship so that uh, when they got struck, it didn't blow apart the mast, And then what they noticed was when they went into a thunderstorm, they would get um, a lot of electrons sort of gathering around. They didn't know that. But basically what would happen is they get a bunch of electrons gathering around the lightning rod, and it would make the air around it fluoresce. And so that was St. Elmo's fire. And this is um, that same group in New Zealand sort of making it just that much bigger. Okay, So that's how to take care of it. The best way is to not get struck. Okay. Well, when the lightning storm comes Don't go get in the metal shelter Okay Sounds sort of silly I, um, My dad was drafted for Vietnam And uh, we got sent to Ohio Which, my memory of Ohio Is uh, it had corn It had tornadoes And uh, it had lots of lightning storms And everybody on the air base Used to like to sit out on their back porch Under the tin roof and watch the lightning storms <laughs> <coughs> And um, You know, whatever, it was the Air Force. So, um, you know, don't go under the metal shelter, okay? Um, You want to put on shoes, and ideally you want to have dry shoes, right? Since the most common way that you're going to get a lightning strike is through ground current. So a strike near you and you catch current coming off the ground. And then you want to avoid tall structures and or metal structures. As much as you can, you want to stay dry since you have more resistance, and so you're more likely to get flashover if you get hit if you're dry than if you're wet, where you're gonna be a better conductor, and so you're gonna get more of the the current going through you. And then the last thing is you wanna crouch, but not lie down. And the reason you don't wanna lie down is if you're in a big open spot, the more of you that sticks up as a mass, the more target there is. So your vertical sort of surface area is smaller if you crouch, and you're not as high. This is Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong's an interesting spot. So I went there with my, my wife and kids. So we're in Hong Kong, and it's, it's a bizarre place and for a lot of reasons. One of which is when the lightning storms are coming in around monsoon time, they make this sort of announcement like, everybody please go inside. And I'm like, uh, come on, it's just a storm. It's not that big a deal. But everything shuts down. All of the um, all the subways stop. Anything that goes above ground stops. Everybody gets off of the covered walkways. They go, all go into the buildings. And what you eventually realize is that the buildings are covered with lightning rods all around them. And so we go up into our um, hotel room and watch out across the city. And, and honestly, it wasn't that great a view of the city, except that when the lightning storm comes in, it hits everything. And it arcs back and forth between the buildings. It's the coolest thing ever. Um, but the other thing you don't realize is how much concussive force there is from a lightning strike. So you're sitting inside the hotel room, the hotel's getting hit, and the windows are vibrating. Right? So you know that ideal gas law, you go, eh, okay, whatever, that was OCHEM or CHEM. It's not that big a deal. If you get enough volts and enough current going through, that's a huge deal. Okay? It's very cool. Yeah, so, uh, non, so the question was, when you say non-metallic shel- um, shelters, what about cars? So cars and airplanes are essentially the same idea, right? Um, and for those things, you're in an enclosed spot, but there's not a ground to it, okay? So your rubber tires essentially protect you, provided you don't put your foot out of the car and touch it. And it's the same thing in a, an airplane. Right, so airplanes get hit fairly frequently um, and they, they take some damage, but it's not as much because there's not an easy way to ground it. It, it fries electronics, but it doesn't, doesn't fry the people. Yeah. The question was uh, so water's a good conductor of electricity. What about if you're on a boat in the lake and the lightning hits somewhere else in the lake? Is that right? So the thing about ground current is, uh, you remember, this is two very large reservoirs of positive and negative energy that are basically trying to neutralize their relative difference. All right? But they're massive. right? So one's all cloud and one's all earth, whether it's water or dirt. So ground current dissipates very quickly into the earth. The question is, how close are you and how unlucky are you? Okay. Now, people are close enough that that's the most common way to get struck. But if you're in a boat, on a a lake. Um, honestly fresh water is probably not as good a conductor as salt water, but let's say it's in um I don't know, the Dead Sea or the Black Sea. Um, again the the problem is that the, the reservoir for that current to go into is so huge that yeah you should be able to get some of it, but you probably won't get a lot of it. How do you insulate yourself from the ground? Well your shoes do a pretty good job of it. Right, so most shoes are rubber-soled. Um, I guess if you're old school and you need, like, a leather-soled boot, that, that would be unfortunate. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, uh, getting onto rock would be sort of your next best option. Getting on a rock? Well, yeah, on a rock, down in a gully, probably. <laughs> right, because you don't want to be the tall guy on the rock. Right. Because um, that, that would be worse. But rock's a, a terrible conductor. I the comment was, uh, in the National Park Service, you were taught to throw down your sleeping pad and stand on that, uh, wherever, or crouch on that. Um, and it makes total sense, right? It's uh, Depending on the quality of your sleeping pad, it's either inflatable plastic, um, which is usually mine, or it's some sort of rubber. Um, the rubber one would obviously be better. It's also a better pad. Um, but it's a better insulator. <laughs> so the question is... Uh, If you're in a forest and the lightning storm comes, do you shelter under a tree or, uh, I guess, try and find a spot without a tree? Um, uh, So, yeah, as somebody said, I'd try and find the shortest tree I could, probably. Um, Because really, what you're looking at is, is, where does the charge build up, right? That's where the strike is most likely to occur. So you get positive and negative charge, and the charge tends to build... So St. Elmo's fires because the charge tends to build at the tip of the lightning rod on the top of the mast. So you don't want to be under the tallest tree because if charge is going to build up, it's going to build up at the tip of that tree. Um, And then, honestly, you want to be some distance from the trunk so you don't get the arc and become the the path of least resistance. So it sounds facetious, but I'd try and find a short tree. So hyperthermia is basically elevated body temperature where the temperature of your body has exceeded your ability to regulate it, right? So if you think about this, this is basically an input-output problem, right? How, how much heat do you produce? Well, we've all got a basal metabolic rate. Um, it's about this. Now, obviously, it varies. So a toddler's Basal metabolic rate, pound for pound, is probably huge, but because there's not a lot of pounds of it, it's not that much. right? The rest of us have a much lower metabolic rate, um, but there's more of us, like volume-wise or weight-wise. If you shiver, so if you get really cold and you start to shiver, this is why it works. It generates about 500 kilocalories an hour. I, as I'm going to tell you in a little bit, if you're a professional soccer player playing in World Cup, you generate about 900 to 1,000 kilocalories an hour. Um, this is as close as I'll probably ever get to being a professional soccer player. Okay. It is to be shivering somewhere. Um, and then physical activity, you know, it's 200 plus kilocalories an hour, and it depends what you're doing. So if you're up climbing at elevation and you're going up a mountain, well, you're generating more than 200 kilocalories. The other part of this, though, is that some medications change how much heat you produce. Okay, so some of the antidepressants do this. Taking thyroid medicine does this. Some things that are loosely medications like cocaine, speed, um, some of the weight loss medications generate more metabolic rate as a way to either make you feel happy or make you lose weight. Okay, on the heat loss side, for most of us, we radiate the majority of our heat. So that's 60% of our heat losses is through radiation, right? It just sort of Flows off of you. That's why if you look on those, um, <clears throat> if you ever play with those uh, sort of heat goggles, like particularly if you tr- decide to do paintball at night, you want heat seeking goggles so you can see the other guy. All right, that's why you can see them, is because you radiate heat and so you can sort of see the objects moving around. Now, the next ways to lose heat are evaporation, right? So that's sweat, but we all do evaporation just on breathing. We lose somewhere in the order of 500 cc's to a liter of fluid just by breathing every day. Um, And then conduction. So if you've ever made the mistake of uh, sleeping in the UCLA parking lot, if you've been a Cal fan and you um, haven't planned ahead for where you're going to sleep, you'll realize that actually the, the concrete sucks a lot of heat out of you. Right? That's sort of like the best way to think of conduction. And it was actually the example I used on my physics test for how I knew conduction worked. Um, but, but that's basically the idea, right? Is that you're transferring heat into another object. Okay? So if you sort of sit in the snow, you transfer heat into the snow. And then convection or wind, if you think about it, this is basically evaporative loss as the wind blows past you and pulls heat off of the surface of you. And then the final thing that adjusts um, heat loss are medications, and, and honestly, the biggest one here are vasodilators, so blood pressure medications also, to some extent, increase your heat loss, but uh, the medication most of us know is alcohol, um, both vasodilates you, so it makes you lose a little more heat, and it also resets your sort of internal temperature set point, um, so that you, you tend to run a little colder. Okay, so what causes hyperthermia? Well... World Cup in Qatar in 2022 (laughs) is going to cause hyperthermia. Okay, so the biggest risk factors here are things that change how fast you can lose heat and how fast you gain heat. So if you're dehydrated, you can't sweat or you won't sweat as much, and because you're not sweating as much, you can't lose as much heat. Okay, if you're not acclimatized, so you're you know, you're from the Bay Area, you live at what, 10 to 20 feet above sea level, and you go to Tahoe, which is, you know, 5,000 feet plus or minus, and you decide to go hiking, your metabolic rate to do the same hike there as here is much higher, so you accumulate more heat. Now, you acclimatize over time, but you have to burn more there, okay? Humidity changes this somewhat because if it's very humid... You can't dump water into the environment and get the evaporative heat loss as fast as you can in a dry climate. Okay? Exercise, well, uh, it sort of goes without saying. Um, and then impaired temperature regulation. So this is mostly people drinking when they go hiking in Tahoe and they're not understanding why they get hot. So just to drive home my point about Qatar, a colossally bad choice, right? <laughs> Average daytime temp 106, okay? <laughs> the range is 102 to 120 right? during the day, down to about 104 at night. You can't find a time to play World Cup soccer in Qatar that makes any sense at all. Okay, And then the average player, so it sort of depends where you play in the field. So if you're a defender, you burn a little less. If you're a mid, you're burning about 900 to 1,000 kcals an hour. So we talk about um, heat exhaustion or sort of hyperthermia in terms of spectrums of issues. Okay, so there's heat exhaustion, which is, um, uh, well, it's up here. So it's nausea, vomiting, cramping, some sweating, some chills, some dizziness, and just feeling miserable. Um, This is sort of when you've gotten hyperthermic, but you've not completely lost your ability to to self-regulate. I forget who this guy is. it's so one of the US, um, U.S. Open sort of hopefuls who basically uh, drank the night before and drink, didn't drink enough water during the day and then sort of collapsed on the court. The unfortunate part about this is that you feel miserable for about two days afterwards. Right? So you have to drink lots of fluids, get out of the heat, and then just basically lay there until you come back. There's not a, not a great fix for it. Heat stroke is a little bit different. Here you've sort of exceeded your body's ability to come back. Um, so if you measured core temps, which nobody's going backpacking with a core temp thermometer. And if you are, there's something really wrong with you. But um, it's a temp of 40 to 41 degrees Celsius, which sits at about 104, give or take, Fahrenheit. Okay? Um, and what you'll start to see is people sweat a whole bunch, and then they get dry. So like they stop sweating, and then they start to get confused, and then they start not walking. Okay? So what's the field management? Well, you know, get out of the sun. Duh. Okay, So get in the shade And then ideally If you're able to fan the person um, Put on a fan Because you're trying to increase their heat loss right? So radiation heat is essentially a, a fixed amount It's based on your body surface area Not really anything else right? So if you're in the shade you're going to radiate Whatever your fixed amount is And so now we're going to try and get you to To do evaporative and conductive cooling And really more Evaporative if we can Okay, so fan helps with that. And then this is sort of the mist fans that you'll see like at marathons, particularly the Boston Marathon. We used to sit in the medical tent and you would try to sort of like angle the fan. So it blew on the medical tent until all the people came and then you'd aim it back at them. Um, But it's it's pretty impressive how much it cools things down. It'll drop it 10, 15 degrees while you're there. And then as soon as the fan moves away, it all comes back. Um, If you can't do this, wet their clothes down and put it on them. Okay, and again, the idea here is that you're trying to promote the amount of evaporation that you can, so that they drop heat as that all evaporates. Okay, if you can't do that, you can try ice bags. There's uh, there's these YouTube videos of people getting submerged in water with a straw, which just seems ridiculous. Um, but uh, you know, sure. And then cool oral liquids. I don't know. So anybody that's got heat, um, heat exhaustion or just heat illness is going to be dehydrated, right? This is part of the problem. They've sort of run out in front of their hydration level so that they can't drop enough heat by sweating, right? So you want to rehydrate them. And then there's this idea that you should probably wipe off the sweat to try and give more space for more sweat to get better evaporative loss. So I guess my answer to that would be you want a thin layer of clothing on them. Um, And then ideally what you want is air moving across the top of it to sort of promote the evaporation and the the temperature drop both on the skin and in the air around them. So um, these fans are really cool. San Francisco General, (laughs) we don't have a fan quite like that. So we would get uh, alcoholic guys that would pass out um, kind of down there where AT&T Park is and they'd be out in the sun and they get hyperthermic and, and get brought in. And the way we would sort of reproduce this is you'd take off the five layers of clothes that they usually had on and then you'd wet a sheet and put it over them and you'd get the janitor's floor fan and you'd put it up on a garbage can and blow it across the top. But honestly, it's highly effective. Um, and, and that's kind of what you're trying to reproduce. So like a thin layer of cloth... That's wet And whether it's salt water Or salty water Versus fresh water I don't think matters So much as Thin and air Moving across it Yeah So the question is um, If you're hyperthermic Does it matter Whether you're drinking Cold water Room temperature water Or hot water In terms of the amount of Energy you have to expend If you're hyperthermic You want to expend No energy If anything What you want to do Is just dump it Into something So at some level, drinking cold water would work better. But if you think about it, um, it takes one kcal to raise one ml of water one degree Celsius. right? You're trying to go from 40 to 37, but there's a lot of you. So you would have to drink a massive amount of cold water for it to really bend the curve there. So, um, you know, yeah, it would be ideal, um, but I wouldn't... If the question is cold water or no water, go with cold water. Or if it's hot water versus no water, go with hot water. Because really the issue there is dehydration far far more than the heat heat sink portion of that. Um, The other things that you can do that are a little more sort of aggressive are to try and decrease the person's basal metabolic rate. And the way you do that is you intubate them and you paralyze them so their muscles can't twitch. And you're going to take their 100 kcal per hour down to about 5 or 10. Okay, yeah. What about ice? Yeah, so ice, cold water, all of that works. Um, if you're schlepping around a big bag of ice and you get hyperthermic, though, <laughs> this is kind of the, um, you know, when you're in the hole, stop digging sort of thing. <laughs> but, yeah, ice, ice is a great heat sink, right? So then prevention. This is actually the original D.H. Lawrence, uh, do you guys know who he is? Yeah, so all, all of his imperialism issues aside, led the Middle East to, in an uprising against the Ottoman Turks. Um, was an English guy who, uh, to use the British term, went native. Peter O'Toole played him along with two guys whose name I'm forgetting. Um, anyway, so in terms of prevention, it's hydration. Loose clothes with a loose weave. Okay, and then there's this back and forth on whether or not you should wear dark clothes or light clothes that I'll come back to in a second. Okay, you want to avoid alcohol at least until you're out of the heat. Um, ideally, you'd like to acclimatize before you go out and really exert yourself. And then this sort of timed exertion is, you know, mad dogs and Englishmen are the only ones out in the noonday sun. So choose when you go out and do things. Okay. So this whole question of should you be wearing dark clothes versus light clothes. Um, These guys actually studied in the 1980s. And it's um, a Palestinian guy, an Israeli guy, and a British guy, which has to be the oddest political combination ever. Um, And they convinced somebody, and they don't really say who it is, to stand in the middle of the Sinai Desert on four consecutive days, one day in white robes, one day in black robes, one day in a tan uniform, and one day just in a pair of shorts. And they measured his core temperature, his skin temperature, and the temperature on the outside of his clothes. And the worst choice was standing out there in a pair of shorts, followed by being in a tan uniform. The the interesting thing about this is that the person in the white robes had the lowest cloth temperature, but the same core temperature as the person in the dark robes. And they sort of then went and looked at, well, why is that? And this is sort of geeky, but the reason is that white clothes transmit short wavelength heat better than dark robes. So while it absorbs more, it dissipates between the robe and the person. Okay. And there was some argument that actually the dark robes create some sort of internal like little um, microclimate that tends to pull heat up out of, out of the robes. I think that probably only works if the robes are very loose. But, but it's an interesting article, in, in part just because of the three people that did it. Okay. Any questions at all? Thank you very okay. much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.